0: This week on the Boag World Show, we're joined by Abby Covert to discuss availability, gaining respect and the customer's perspective. This week's show is sponsored by Shopify and InVision. Welcome to the Boat World Show, the podcast about user experience, digital strategy, digital management, or whatever the hell I feel like talking about this week. Joining me on this week's show, as always, is Marcus. Hello, Marcus. Hello, Paul. How are you? I'm very well in this glorious, sunny summer's day. Yes, one of the two we get. Yes, yes. We'll make the most of it while we can. And Abby Covert. Hello, Abby. How are you?
1: Hello. Good. Thanks for having me on.
0: Now you see today is what twenty six degrees something like that. So I saw I hear Marcus is that is that about what it is for you?
2: Uh, it might be twenty seven up here in but I've, in American uh, that's about eighty five. Okay. So, but, which is super but, hot for us. Oh,
0: unbelievably so. <laughs> but as 95. I remember, sorry, Abby from our previous conversation. Sorry, oh, no preamble, no introduction oh. to who you are. It's the kind of mood I'm in today. Just <laughs> go with it. As I remember, last time we were talking. I seem to remember that your childhood consisted of growing up on some idyllic Caribbean island. Is that right? Or did I imagine that?
1: No, you did not imagine that. I grew up on an island called St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Wow. So,
0: so this isn't very hot for you then? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, not at all. And I, I actually, I just relocated uh, with my husband to uh, Melbourne, Florida. So I'm back to tropical living.
2: Oh, I see. Well, we get two days a year and this it's today and tomorrow. Is that it? Pretty that, much. That's all we're allowed. <laughs> <laughs> what I don't understand, what confuses me,
0: uh, uh, and I've got a question. This is going to show my ignorance. Humidity, right? Mm. You know, you know, it talks about because because Florida is very humid as well. We we when we get summer days like today, it's very humid, right? I don't understand how humidity. Well, I understand how humidity works, but I don't understand how they measure it, right? I was thinking about this earlier. This is the kind of thing that I think about when I'm sitting in a beer garden. Not with a lot of work cider. on at
2: the moment, then, Paul. No no I'm <laughs> writing my book.
0: I'm writing the latest book You're which thinking. involves a lot of sitting around and thinking about unrelated things <laughs> when I get stuck. And the thing that I want to know is if ze- if zero humidity because they always measure humidity in percentages. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry about this Abby. This it's this, this nothing whatsoever to it. It's just the mood of me. If zero humidity is is no Moisture in the air. Does that mean a hundred percent humidity is just swimming in water? No, Paul. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I don't so think what, that's the way it works.
0: So, what is a hundred percent humidity then? It's, it's it's just some random arbitrary value that they picked?
1: I think it's the the amount of humidity that the air is capable of handling. So uh, it's not, it's not water. It's still air. <laughs> I mean, right. like, right, right now in Florida, we're up in like the 90s, uh, in terms of percentage of humidity. And I'm, I assure you that it is not, uh, like living underwater. <laughs> so I don't think it's, mm. it's not quite that way, but it does mean that, like, there's no more, hum- there's no more moisture that the air can take.
0: Without it starting to rain, one presumes.
1: Oh. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe you should have a meteorologist on the show and, and really like, dive change,
0: in.
2: Let's change the subject of the podcast. Well, I just that.
0: I'm bored with talking about project management stuff. So I figured, <laughs> <laughs> what's more interested than that? And I thought Pretty meteorology. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. This is what seriously. <laughs> I was sitting. I was sitting in the beer garden, drinking my pint of cider that I do when I write. <laughs> And that was what went through my head. so I thought, who better to ask about that than i a expert
2: Abby Covert. Well, you had a better so, answer, a better reply or response than I had. I was yeah gonna say it was just going to be it would feel wetter or something like that. But before you move on, I have right. to thank Abby oh yeah that? Uh, yeah because you agreed to move the podcast um and the reason i did that is because i got last minute tickets well, the reason why i asked you to do it is i got last minute tickets to go and see a big cricket match which probably doesn't mean anything to you but uh, it's it's at the, the kind of home of cricket in london and i got tickets last minute and i would have not been able to go if you hadn't agreed to, to move the podcast so thank you
1: Well, i'm, I'm glad that a, a caribbean girl could give you a chance to see cricket because we oh, also play cricket there <laughs>
2: of course you do sorry yes i didn't make the connection <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. So was it a good match? Did you, or, or
0: is it a match, or do you call it a game? I don't know. A cricket. It's, it's a match. Me. Yeah, it a, is a match. I got it
2: right. Test match. It was day two of. Well, it ended up being four four days. England didn't win, but it was still a good game. It was a good day. So yeah. But it was, then, it if it's a four day long game and you only saw one day, I mean, I have it's to like, go into the I have to ex- try and explain Test cricket to you, Paul. We don't have long enough. Because it strikes
0: me that's like watching one episode of Game of Thrones, you know, deeply unsatisfying
2: and no idea what's going on. Well, I, I, we haven't got long enough. Okay. And you wouldn't understand. So it's just not <laughs> worth it. <laughs> so, so, Abby, you've, you've re, – I'm moving on now. Move. On. So you've relocated to
0: Florida, have you? It's true. So, so you were? Where were you before that? You were in New York, weren't you, or did I imagine that?
1: Yeah, New York City. It's. Uh, I live in the most opposite place of New York City now. I think possible, at least in America. So. Right.
0: So, well, How did that come about? Just family family decision, or uh, what was the plan?
1: Well, I've been traveling a lot uh, the last few years, and living in New York was great from the perspective of having access to many airports, but. Uh, I wasn't spending a tremendous amount of time in New York, so I started to really question uh, sort of the lifestyle choice of being yeah. in the city, specifically around like having a tiny apartment that I lived and worked <laughs> in. So uh, my husband is from Melbourne, Florida, and we uh, we started looking at houses, and we found a, a great house that allows me to have a separate workspace from the rest oh. of the house, and that's sort of been my dream for the last few years as a an independent. So, um, mm-hmm. So yeah, we've been here three months now. It's really great.
0: Okay. I tell you that for me, when we when we moved, getting getting uh, uh, my office is like a, a, a garage that it adjoins the house.
1: Yeah, mine too. That, yeah.
0: Oh, that's the best thing ever. It's just so nice. Yeah, isn't you can
1: it? you can actually shut the door on on the work. I mean, before for the last five years, I've been living in a four hundred square foot apartment uh, with a sleeping loft, and my office was underneath the bed.
2: So it was just like ah. this
1: strange little hole in the in the world, um, which was great. But it was time to time to branch out and get some separate space.
0: Yeah, I tell you, what, what did it for me was when we had our son and, and he was a little baby and, we, you know, I was trying to work in the middle of the house while he was screaming his head off and oh, no, bad. Mm-hmm. That was bad anyway we 'll be on such things now, so so you're still you 're still operating as an independent consultant. What kind of uh, give people an idea of the kind of clients that you work with and the kind of work you do
1: Sure. so um, I work with companies of all sizes um, just this year alone i 've worked with uh, companies with hundreds of thousands of employees that have been around for you know, forty years i 've also worked with uh, small and mid sized startups that are growing um and my focus is the same regardless of what the company size is i'm i'm helping them to understand how they can make more resilient structures and how they can be clearer with the language that they're speaking uh, internally as well as externally with their customers
0: mm. so it's quite interesting isn't it because uh, i i found talking to you very interesting when we first met because you know i went into the conversation with you having quite a narrow view of what I could considered information architecture. And when you described yourself as an information architect, I made certain presumptions that you quickly dispelled me of. So uh, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, uh, the kind of where information architecture starts and stops for you? Because I think that's quite an enlightening subject
1: Sure, yeah, I, I think that a lot of times when I run into someone, especially those people that have been working in in the web specifically, the assumption is that an information architect is directly responsible and only responsible for web navigation system design, so mm-hmm. sort of like what does your top nav have the world divided into in terms of sections, and then if you have other navigational devices, uh, what are they and, and kind of what are they called and That is a form of information architecture, and I would say if you 're working in digital. That is the most prevalent form of information architecture that's practiced, uh, but from a kind of historical Perspective information architecture is a lot broader than that. So it was something that came about kind of simultaneously from the technology industry as well as from the design and architecture landscape. So essentially, it's any time that you're describing the parts of a whole in terms of how they're going to come together around the intention of, of your business. Um, yeah. And that can apply to things outside of just websites and applications. Um, and in my career, I've, I've helped to do a lot of things that are um, considered more on the business process Process side um, And then I've also worked outside of the digital landscape in terms of uh, user experience with things like restaurant menus. Um, if you think about a restaurant menu, it's very similar to a navigational menu uh, mm-hmm. on a website, and mm-hmm. they kind of adhere to the same, the same principles when it comes to information architecture around making things make sense.
0: So, I suspect people are, are sitting at home listening to this thinking, uh, hang on a minute. I thought this season of the podcast was about digital management and, you know, uh, digital. Business processes and that kind of stuff. Why, why on earth, you know, everybody else that Paul has talked to this season has, you know, been digital project managers and people like that. Why on earth is Abby on the show? Why on earth are we talking about information architecture all of a sudden? But the one thing, um, that stuck with me. Well, I mean, there was lots of things that we talked about last time we, we met up, but the one thing that stuck with you, me is that you were talking about how your job leads you I think the word you use was down the rabbit hole Mm. Right. That that you kind of you start with something, you know, potentially quite superficial in terms of, you know, something like a website navigational structure. But before you know it, you're digging into, you know, those much deeper issues about, you know, how an organization is structured, how it thinks, how it sees itself and that kind of stuff. So that's kind of the context of why, you know, why I thought it'd be great to get you on the show. And I presume you're still doing a lot of that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think more and more as I go through projects with companies of all different sizes, I I become even more convinced that how you do anything is how you do everything. And mm-hmm. I do feel like often the way that you're organized uh ends up on your organizational structures um on the things that you make. So, you know, some yeah. people call that shipping the org chart. I do see that happen quite a bit. Um and, and also I feel like in a lot of cases as an external consultant, I can come in and tell you what's wrong. But if I'm not able to tell you why, um, fixing it might not actually have the effect long-term that would actually yeah. fix the problem. So we might fix the navigational schema of your, of your website. Um, but six months later, if you haven't fixed the, the why behind that problem, it's just going to have kind of atrophied back to that original Point. So I do spend, uh, I would say, quite a bit of time with companies that I work with talking about the way that they themselves are organized and also the mental models within their organizations and the employees that, that work on these problems and how those mental models deeply impact the ability for them to reach their customers in a clear way
0: yeah that is that's so true it it almost feels a bit like you know um an elastic band to me sometimes working with a with a company that yeah you can kind of stretch them to fit something that is is more appropriate but given you know you let go for a minute and it'll spring back to its natural state and you see that all the time where you know um i've seen organizations that bring in you know some kind of digital leader to head up their new digital initiative and this person kind of fights against the system of the organization and they bring about change and they make it work and they make it happen through strength of will and then eventually they get tired out they have to move on from the organization and the organization just springs back to its natural state um and and that's what you're saying isn't it the basic if you can't change the underlying culture things basically revert to their their natural state
1: yeah and i think that that's that's really difficult for for people to be okay with, especially in the design capacity where you really want to see immediate change. And I think that mm. the kind of change that doesn't bounce back over time is the kind that's so slow and thankless, but it's almost <laughs> invisible sometimes. And I think as a, as a consultant, that's something I've had to get really comfortable with. Um, you know, it, it's a strong case study years later, but the immediate yeah. effect is, um, you know, almost negligible, which is, um, you know
0: it, it's, it can be hard for some people to to grasp it's uh, yeah, I know exactly the same thing because you get people that say to you so so can you point at organizations that 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 have done this and been right. successful? <laughs> well, I can point at organizations that have started it and failed because you get to see those but those that are succeeding are still in the process you know it it's an ongoing it's hard to know when that that cultural change is actually taken root and it's really funny I'm writing the book that I'm writing at the moment is um uh, is building a user experience culture is the name of the book and um if I've said once in that book look this is a marathon and not a sw- sprint I must have said it half a dozen times because you know all the time you feel this neat to manage expectations you know if you follow what's in this book it's not miraculously all going to be great but you know it's something that's going to take years to achieve
1: yeah no absolutely and i think also one of the things that i've started to notice in our industry is that we're very willing to talk about best practices once they're done But it's very hard to talk about cultural change because you have to admit your dirty laundry. Like you have to admit like, oh, you know, we were a culture of fear and then we decided that we were going to go in a different direction. Well, nobody wants to admit that they were a culture of fear and that their employees were maybe turning over at a higher rate than – Uh, than wanting to admit. And there's a lot of kind of secret keeping that I feel Mm -hmm. keeps us from talking about these things in a broader sense and and looking at examples. You know, you can only see what's on a company's face. It's very difficult to see kind of what's going on underlying.
0: What's really weird, it's it's funny that you you mention a culture of fear there, because I'm working with a client at the moment that has exactly that. But what's really funny is I can't get to the root of where that fear comes from because the whole of senior management are saying go for it go for it you know we really want we're supporting you all the rest of it but it's an organization that's been around a while and somewhere in the past this kind of fear has 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 established itself and it's really hard to to shake that even when people are saying the right kind of things. so those kind of big cultural changes are, you know, are, are, are very frustrating because sometimes it can be hard just finding out where they've come from, if nothing else.
1: Yeah. And there's the, there's the finding out yourself. And then there's the actually showing them, like the
0: yeah.
1: the hand mirror aspect of, of what external consultants are able to do. And I find that that is often the part that, um, you know, the night before that presentation, I'm often like, oh my gosh, I'm telling them things that they already know. And it's, yeah. like, it's like Captain Obvious called and he wants his presentation <laughs> back and, and all that yeah. stuff. But in reality, what often happens is those people have never sat in a room together and heard the truth said all at the same time. They might have all had side conversations about it or one-on-ones about it or, you know, heard bits and pieces. But actually getting them all in the room and saying like, hey, you know what? This might seem obvious to some of you and not to others, but you actually all agree that this needs to change. And I find that that's a really powerful moment that – Maybe too many people avoid because they think it's obvious. You know, you have to be willing to put yourself into that position of maybe seeming like, yeah, duh, we know that. <laughs> but so far, I've never had that happen where somebody's like, yeah, we already know that. Next. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know. It's really weird. Yeah. And there's also, there's this, the, the element of it as well is where everyone in the organization is basically saying good, positive things, yet they think everyone else is not thinking those things.
1: Yes. Oh my gosh. I, I'm i working on a project right now that's exactly like that. Or like everyone in the organization is convinced that there's some other group in the organization that's yeah. really against the change. And, and then you talk to the people in that group and they want the same dang thing. And you're like, yeah. well, where is, this, where is this coming from? from but if you i I feel like if you continue to dig eventually you'll hear that one story that somebody will be like oh well so and so who used to work here did this thing this one time and you know this happened or so and so got fired or this product didn't ship because of this xyz and and then you're like oh my gosh light bulbs this is this is the reason and then it's just telling them that story back so that they can Mm -hmm. move on just like any other form of therapy i suppose
0: it, it, oh it does feel like therapy sometimes as well doesn't it yeah i was i was writing a um i would just written a bit in the book about how um i worked with one company where where there was a, um, a very very stereotypically a conflict between marketing and it um you know and i when you try and dig into it and you kind of dug down to what was going on there. It was nothing to do with anybody that was still at the company. Yeah, it was two previous heads of those two departments that hated each other with a passion. Yeah, and it, it just stuck in the culture of the organisation. The weirdest thing, yeah. really weird. Something no, I, 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 Yeah, I'm,
1: they're like little sponges. organizations. you You're
0: not going to get an, a, a word in edgeways, Marcus. We're both getting overexcited about yeah, sharing. Absolutely
2: fine. I, I was just going. The one thing you hadn't mentioned is is People tend to kind of. I, I found even senior people in these kind of situations tend to tell you what they think you want to hear, and then yeah. and then push off to whatever it is they do every day, and think, "Well, I've I've answered that correctly. I've you know, you know I've I've said yes, yes, we should be doing this," and then they go away and do nothing about it. Uh, mm-hmm. f- that's something I've come up against, um, oh. which is slightly different to what we've been talking about here.
1: No, I think that that's that comes back to you know when. When you ask questions, sometimes it's not actually uh, the answer at its face value that you're looking for. It's Mm -hmm. the way that they answered the question and and sort of like reading between the lines of the answer that's actually going to get you to the the place that you need to with that person. And I do find that a lot of times, like breaking through that sort of we know what we're doing executive shell um, Mm -hmm. is a really important aspect. And I I have a couple of of questions that are sort of my go-to for that. One of them is... um, it's sort of silly, but I feel that it works with, with most people is I ask them if they had a magic wand and they could change anything in the organization. It doesn't have to be to do with the project that I'm working on. Just anything. What would it be? And why? Ooh, and, I like that. And usually like they give you an answer that, actually wouldn't take magic to fix. <laughs> and you're like, oh okay. And you can usually within like, you know, two clicks get back to the project that you're working on because you know, everything's sort of uh intertwingled, as Ted Nelson would say.
0: <laughs> I like that a lot. Anyway, that, that all of that is a complete tangent. Well it's not. It's all exactly what we should be talking about. And it, it it's all the kind of uh, the so many so many of these things affect the projects that we work on day by day and that's the that's the kind of following the rabbit hole or you know opening the can of worms or whatever analogy you want to use that you know you you think that you're building a website but actually you know this has become the nexus the battleground for all of these other things that are going on within the organization and you end up having to get into so it's amazing how many of these kind of cultural things are actually the underlying problems that make projects so hard some of the time yeah but the before- before we get on to um, the actual questions that we're going to be answering today, I just uh, today I just want to quickly talk about our sponsor, um, Envision, because um, Envision uh, have been supporting us all through the season and it's really appreciated. They've got an amazing suite of prototyping and design tools, and if you are doing things like um, you know prototyping a website, if you want to start engaging with stakeholders um, over the approaches that you're taking, then something like Envision is a great tool. It's got some great features built into it and for, prototyping but they 've got some really cool features in beta too which um, is quite interesting for example um, you can now create pixel perfect comps within Envision rather than just uploading them from whatever graphics tool that you 've currently been using in the past so you can actually work within the application um, which is really interesting because that then enables you to create instant handoff documentation for people like developers because they can you know see the underlying CSS that envision um, has created now they' Really not going to want to use that for the actual build but it will at least give them all the values and colors and uh, fonts and the other kind of stuff that you need so so there's some really interesting stuff going on from that side of things which is going to make the kind of handoff and working relationship with your developers so much easier you can get three uh, why did, why they had to say three three free months Who? try saying that after you've been sitting in the beer garden drinking cider um of unlimited prototypes uh, the mobile user testing the boards all the cool stuff that they offer just go to boag.world forward slash envision and you enter the code inv-boag and you'll get three free months <laughs> 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 Okay, so let's move on to some of the questions that people have been submitting in regards um, to digital management and, and and working on digital projects. Um, so, Abby, from, from your point of view, this entire season, you know, we're very conscious that there's there's loads of great material out there for designers, there's loads of great material for developers, there's, you know, places that you can go for help in both of those areas, but there's very little for those of us that have to kind of manage the logistics of a digital project. So what we've been asking is for people People to send in their questions and we're kind of dealing with them now sometimes it's kind of client relationship type um questions sometimes it's internal team structures it's a whole mix of stuff so um i've picked out three questions that i thought i'd discuss with you if that's all right
1: yeah sounds great
0: cool so number one is from john he says how do you deal with clients who have availability issues it sounds like a disability doesn't it um (laughs) when you need to get feedback ask a question or get domain knowledge about a specific detail and they're unavailable to contribute this is such a big problem isn't it it's getting at the right people at the right time um and you know especially with big decision makers how do you deal with that abby in your kind of situation because you must need to work with some of these people that are incredibly busy
1: yeah i know that's something that I, I run into quite often uh, and i would say that um you know, the- the salesman in me doesn't like the answer that I have but it's still the answer and that is um, I wait you know I I often see project slide because of unavailability and I feel that the the best course of action is to communicate that the project is sliding and the reason is because of availability and if it's the person that hired you that's unavailable uh, that's a little bit easier to sell than if it's some other person that they're trying to put you in contact with that's that's unavailable but I ultimately feel like the risk of moving forward without the input is greater than the risk to the timeline pushing. Um, so, like I said, the, the salesman in me does not like the answer because I, I love for things to fit so neatly on the calendar the way that they're portrayed at the beginning of a project. But often, what ends up actually happening is things sliding because of avail- availability. So, I don't like to I don't like to work on assumption um, instead of waiting around for that person to actually be available. Um, so that that's one part. And then the other part I would say is um, don't be afraid of encouraging off-time availability, um, so sometimes the executive that you want to get access to can't possibly meet with you between the 9 and 5, but they can meet at 6.30 in the morning. <laughs> so oh. I have definitely had that c- circumstance where um, I'm meeting them at some ungodly time. Um, I've also had quite a bit of luck, especially with stakeholder interviews, catching people when they're on their commute or um, or doing something uh, that has nothing to do with work, like being at home. And you kind of like catch them at a different time. And if you're just on the phone with them, um, you can sometimes get a, a good relaxed perspective from, from them at that, that point. So those are the, the sort of keys I would say.
0: I like that. That second one of catching them, you know, outside of work is, is quite a good one. Although, Six thirty in the morning. I don't think I'd be able to ask any intelligent questions at six thirty in the morning. Yeah, Wouldn't no, I, I think that
1: that's uh, that's not my favorite as well. But you know, <laughs> it's always six thirty a.m. somewhere. So,
0: well, oh, that's true. So, I mean, th- th- that must be a logistical nightmare for you, mine. If you're if you're waiting around for clients because you know you you've not got a, a big team behind you. So, if a project slips, surely that that creates all kinds of headaches for you.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I try to have lots of padding, um, between my projects. That's a a big function of just the way that I've, I've organized my business. Um, I don't fill my schedule and I tend to work on a pretty, um, lengthy pipe of project work. So I don't, I don't have to push off other clients to, you know, push out the one that I'm working on right now. Um, it's just not the way that, that I tend to structure the work that I do. Uh, I also, I've just, over the years, I've noticed the sliding calendar time so much that I've, I've sort of arranged my business to be, um, cash flow agnostic to what's going on right now, which gives you a lot more, um, kind of ability to be flexible. If you can make it so, you know, the, the payment milestones are not affecting your, your stress level, uh, it's easier to say, okay, that's fine. We can wait a week. Um, but I, I find that a lot of people, especially people working independently, um, haven't gotten to that place in their business where they've figured that part out yet, and that can be very, very stressful.
0: Can Can I – I mean, feel free to tell me to keep my nose out of it, but can I ask how you do that? Is it that that you, you work on a retainer basis or you're – payment milestones are not connected to milestones in the project. How do you get around that problem?
1: Yeah, I tend to, uh, so there's two types of projects that I'll I'll operate on generally. Uh, One is fixed contracts where there's 50% paid up front, uh, regardless Mm -hmm. of work achieved, and then 50% uh, paid on on delivery. Uh, And then Mm -hmm. the other projects that I work on are more on the ongoing coaching and uh, delivery models where I'm invoicing them for time worked. So I I don't have a preference one over the other. It all depends on the type of project that that's going on or the type of relationship that i have with that client but i think a bigger part of it has nothing to do with the the statement of work and more to do with the way that um i've architected my my sort of finances over time i Mm -hmm. i'm a strong believer of having the uh year in the bank (laughs) to have the flexibility Ah, and that's something that you know you have to you have to sometimes uh belt up and make sure that you're making the correct decisions for, uh, for your life overall to make that work. But I do find that that gives me the flexibility to say no to projects that don't make sense to me. Um, Mm -hmm. and to also, you know, push things out when they need to be pushed out to do the work properly, as opposed to rushing things to get to the, the 50% payoff
0: yeah and that is so true i mean we always used to struggle with that bit well, i suppose you still do marcus um you struggle with that headscape of 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 whether you push hard to to meet that next milestone so that this month you know meets target or whether you allow that to roll over to the next month
2: yeah i'm not i'm quite a lot more relaxed about that at the moment because we've had a really good year and it does it was, yeah june was a a good example of uh, a month where we d- where, for various reasons things slipped and they 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 do slip but i wasn't um concerned about that at all because we'd kind of uh yeah, yeah we'd had such a good q1 and q2 to that point so i was quite happy to let it uh to let it slip i think i think going back to what the, the very first thing you said said there abby was that you've got to communicate um with probably probably the project manager that you're working with that the timeline, if, if I can't meet this person by this point, then, the, then the, the, you know, the project is going to slip and that may be an issue for you. Uh, and I have found out recently that suddenly you do get access to people when yeah. you say that. Yeah, so. no,
1: absolutely. And that's something that I, I don't have fear about putting into yeah. the contract itself. I mean, one of, the, one of the sections that I added to a contract about, I would say, for the first time about three years ago was expectations of the client. And mm, one of the bullet points I is availability, and, and I'm very specific about it. I mean, I, I ask in that proposal process, I ask who I will be expected to include from a stakeholder standpoint. I make sure that they're being realistic about it by looking at their org chart and saying, like, hey, why am I not talking to anybody from marketing? Because I'm pretty sure that person's going to pop up at some point, like a big surprise, so why don't we get mm-hmm. them in there? Um, and then making sure that it's documented when I need those meetings and And how much of those people's time I'm going to be asking for? And if they can't provide that, at least then we're talking about the time slide in the beginning of the project. Um, But, you know, things still go wrong. I had a project recently where a very important um, person in the product organization that I was trying to interview uh, went out on paternity leave uh, three weeks early because his wife went into labor yeah, <laughs> three weeks you early. And, you yeah. know, he's not going to be back for three months. There's no way that we're going to be able to uh, to hold the project for that. But it was still a communications thing where, you know, we had to document and communicate uh, with the rest of the team. Like this person's input was deemed valuable enough to be a a critical stakeholder in the process of proposing this project. What are we going to do uh, in the wake of of this? And, you know, it was decided that somebody else in his organization could step in for him. Um, And that that turned out to be, you know, the decision that the team made. Mm. And that
0: is another solution to the problem that, that, you know, if you've got somebody that is incredibly busy, then they can delegate authority to another individual uh, the 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 only hesitancy in my voice there is whether they really follow through on that if right. if the person they delegate to makes a decision they don't like are they going to change their minds later and that that's quite a hard thing to judge up front yeah. but it can work in some situations
1: yeah they have to delegate more than just their participation at the moment in the project they have to actually delegate their decision making ability and and i think that being really clear about that when the moment of delegation happens say like yeah. hey i'm not you're not just sending a note taker to my workshop So that you don't have to attend, you're actually sending a delegate who has delegate responsibility for making decisions in your stead. And that's, you know, something that, you know, once you say it like that, so baldly, that's when they have the opportunity to go, oh, well, actually, no, that person doesn't have that authority. Or, Mm. well, why don't, why don't I actually set up a half an hour to talk to you in person after that meeting, and I've talked to that person to kind of come to terms and, and those kind of things can be kind of worked out on a, an as needed basis. That's
0: one of the things that I've I've taken away every time I've had a conversation with you, Abby. Is that is you're you are unafraid to say the other things that we would that most people would just let go. Do you know what I mean? Things like that. You know, m- most of us would go, oh, OK, fair enough, they've delegated it. But you seem to you're constantly push for clarification. You're constantly push to make things clearer, um, which I think, you know, is, is absolutely crucial, I guess, comes from your information architecture background.
1: Yeah, I think um, you know, I pride myself on, on being brave, um, but I also, you know, to your point about I'm constantly striving to make things clear, and the only fear that I have is lack of clarity. And so, yeah. if I see something that even has the remote potential of being murky at some point to someone, I just can't help myself. And, and to be <laughs> honest, when I was working for other people in an organization, that was that was something that was uh, both a blessing and a curse on my performance reviews. You know, I, I remember very early in my career, I got a lot of uh, a lot of flack for not having respect for authority um, because oh. I, I, I tend to ask questions that um, maybe shouldn't be asked of people in certain levels of certain organizations and and that's ultimately how i think i figured out that i shouldn't work uh within organizations because i was never going to fit into that management model nor did i want to be a manager so
0: no you and me both abby i think i think this that applies to both of us (laughs) Right. Let's do, let's do our next question, which is from Rachel. What's the best way to help a colleague understand the importance of approaching things from a customer perspective rather than their own internal view? So you talked about shipping the org chart earlier, which is a great example of this. So, so what kind of methods do you use for? For helping people switch that perspective to be customer focused.
1: Sure, uh, I would say this. This goes way back to um, you know the first time that I ever saw a usability test, and I know that yeah. uh, usability testing is probably a, an easy go to, but I think it's it's warranted in mm-hmm. in this question because in a lot of cases, what I see is that for for time and brevity, we will give a deck of results from something being tested to our clients or our colleagues and we'll say, this didn't work. And here's the proof. I watched these people do it and it did not work. And they'll say, Oh, that's a shame. Right. But I've seen so many instances where you actually have that person witness the test And it's so much different. Like when you, when you see a person who has worked on something and believes something so deeply to be usable and you see them sitting behind the glass or watching that video of that participant struggling and you just see them wanting to yell at that person. Like they're a TV character or something like pick up the thing, press the button. (laughs) Um, that's when I think the light bulb really goes on for people and for them to kind of, um, so yeah, I would say show, don't tell. Like if you're really struggling with those reports, not getting it across, um, go to the video, uh, make them sit behind the glass and watch it, get a paper prototype test that's done in front of them, you know, have them serve as your note taker for uh, a few tests to, to kind of get that point across.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We, um, uh, the one of my favorites is low light reels where I, you know, I record, um, obviously we record the user session and then afterwards I edit the kind of worst moments yeah. together, <laughs> you know, it's, it's very compelling. I tell you. But it's interesting, again, you just talked about show don't tell. It's exactly the name of one of the sections in the book I've written. It's something very compelling about actually showing
2: people stuff, isn't it? So I've, yes. I've found that nagging works really well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and what I mean by that is. Because people, i think people do get the idea of being customer focused and putting user first but they still kind of come back to what if you give people something to you know to review or something like that they'll still come back to personal preference and things like that um so I, all, all i do or what we do is just continue continually remind people that really that's a bit kind of internally focused you can hear them sighing every time we <laughs> say it. Yep. Um, but it works and it it, mm-hmm. it just bit by bit by bit by bit you're kind of like just saying no you need to think about this you need to think about this um so that what that seems to work really well for us anyway so i guess nagging is my point that
1: reminds that. me of uh, when i'm working on uh, language issues within organizations i've i've often relied on a uh, a gym whistle I know that. I know that sounds ridiculous. um, So it it all started. I was working for a really large company, and I I was running these big workshops where we had published this list of words we do not say, and they were all historical words that had been used in the organization, and they traditionally caused a lot of confusion, um, specifically around the move from analog processes to digital processes. And we had all decided we're not going to say these things anymore. But but they had become so ingrained in the way that these people Mm -hmm. talk that the only way to train them out of it was. With a whistle, so every time that somebody (laughs) said a word that was wrong, I would blow the whistle, and and over time you started to catch them catching themselves, where they would start Mm. to say the word and then they they didn't want to hear the whistle, so they'd stop.
0: (laughs) So, but also something like that becomes quite fun as well. you know, uh, you say say it like that, and it sounds like you're being a miserable (laughs) schoolmistress, and I'm sure you weren't doing it like that. You turn it into a joke, you turn it into a fun activity. And and it sticks with people, it makes a huge difference doing it like that. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think it
1: also, uh, it kind of, um, it goes past your involvement too, which is really important for the work that I do to, like, leave yeah. something behind. And and I definitely had heard from a couple people that worked in that organization that that happened after I was out of the, the project, that people would still be funny. like, oh, don't say that. <laughs> and
0: they were almost yeah. like,
1: Abby's going to jump out from behind the curtain and <laughs> whistle at you. <laughs>
0: I tell you another little trick that that's worked for me in the past is if there is one person, sometimes it can be like one or two individuals that really don't get the user perspective. One of the things that I found has worked for me is actually to make them responsible for being the user advocate say, right, your job, Mr. So-and-so, is to be the user advocate. And by kind of making that their responsibility rather than your responsibility, it it makes them think in that way. It makes them, you know, start considering things from the user's perspective rather than their personal perspective. And you can reinforce that by saying, okay, John, or whatever this person's name is, how do you think the user will react in that situation? And so they kind of it's almost forcing a level of empathy upon someone by making them responsible for the role.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that that brings on a really interesting discussion about incentives, right? Like if yeah. if you're working with a company on a user experience improvement initiative, but they are only incentivized towards profitability, um, mm-hmm. Good luck <laughs> you know it's yeah. you know, like that's that 's not necessarily a correlation that is easy to to bridge um, and so often I do feel like you have to ask questions about incentive and and sometimes that mm-hmm. means changing what people are responsible for or what they believe their job to be about um, and and communicating that clearly as, as part of the work that you do I think okay. is a a big part of what what we can do to really make lasting change, as opposed to everybody nodding their heads in a particular moment of a project.
0: I, I experienced that recently when I was working for an organization. And, and um, so, so one of the things that we wanted to do was put up a, a, a blog, OK, and, and I said, well, you know, it was just quick and dirty. It was a quick and dirty job. And I said, oh, well, let's use Squarespace just to shove this blog and get it up and running. Um, and, um, uh, you know, it only takes 10 minutes to get Squarespace running. And two weeks later, nothing had happened. And I was pushing as to what went wrong. Oh, it was, you know, it was blocked by um, the the IT security people. They were worried about its vulnerability. Well, Uh, and 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 you know so went on now i said this right i used it as an example in um a, a, a training session that i was doing at that company right and a very angry woman came up to me afterwards and said that she was the one that blocked it and she said oh you know the the what what would happen if isis you know hacked that website um, you know, and how badly that would reflect on our brand and all of this kind of stuff. And what it basically came down to when you, you kind of cut you know, got rid of, you know, all the personalities and all the rest of it is her job was assessed on security. That was how she was judged as an individual. If she had, if ISIS had hacked that website, however obscure and ridiculous a scenario that was, she would have been fired. Yep. And so if she, if you're assessed only on that criteria, then you are going to be incredibly risk averse. And you do get these ridiculous scenarios in situations like that.
1: Yeah and I think that you know that's part of getting at the heart of why something is the way that it is 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 asking mm-hmm. questions about about incentive um and I I often in my stakeholder interviews I ask about um how success is measured at the organization and yeah. often the kind of like reflection question I get back is well do you mean how I'm measured yeah. or do you mean how the whole company is measured and I yeah. ask them to reflect on both just so I can see kind of the differences and like where they fit into Uh, that grand scheme, because often that is the key to like why they Mm -hmm. feel the way they feel about all of the answers that they give me.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Anyway, let's do our last question, which is from Greg. Um, which is, how do I get management? <laughs> Any question that starts with how do I get management it instantly makes me think of that um, Jared Spool article. Yeah. Have, have you, did you read that one about how um, he wrote, uh, how I can't convince executives of anything and neither can you? <laughs> yes, <laughs>
1: I, I totally read that one. That was great.
0: I, I love that one. Anyway, how do I get management to recognize that I'm an expert? And to take my opinion seriously, I seem to be nothing but a pixel pusher to them. Oh, Greg, I feel your pain <laughs> I mean that must be uh, uh, that 's quite a hard one for you and me to answer because being external consultants, that carries a certain weight to it naturally, but you have worked internally yeah you?
1: yeah, I mean, I would say that i've gotten this question a lot in in email and um the advice that I give, uh take with a grain of salt, and if you if you follow it to its end, um it's not my fault. But I have often advised <laughs> people to push so hard that you get fired. Yeah. Um, because you probably get promoted. Like that's the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. Is that you're most likely sheepishly interacting with people at that executive level to the point where they do see you as just a kind of a pixel pusher person. Um and I would say in doing so recognize that your opinions are no better than their opinions, unless you have data to support it. And if you have data to support it, great. But if you're going in there swinging your heuristic stick around, um, you know, just be really careful. Like that's, those things are guideposts. Um, They're not always the way that things are in a given context. And, And I would say that I do run into a lot of uh, I'm an expert because this is my job. You should listen to me, which is really insecurity about their value yeah. within the organization. So, so Greg, I feel your pain, but I would also say, um, check yourself. You know, make sure that your opinions aren't getting in the way of collaborating with your colleagues, including those those managers, because maybe what he should be doing is a lot more asking and a lot less telling.
0: Yeah. And and that's a really good point because the trouble is with being, uh, you know, a, a, an expert in anything, right? It means that you're not an expert in other things, right? right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and when you're working in an organization, it means that you have quite a narrow perspective on things. You know, you know everything there may be to know about user experience, but you know bugger all about business management or nothing about marketing or nothing about whatever else, HR. And so that's where you come back to, uh, you know, that you have to be the one that asking the questions. You have to be the one learning about what's going on. But I also totally agree with you uh, keep going until you get fired attitude. <laughs>
1: Well, I also, I feel like I, I say that I am not an expert in organizing things. I, I'm an expert in helping you to figure out how you should organize your things. And, mm-hmm. and that I feel is a, a bit, it's just a small difference, um, but it makes a huge impact because it reminds people that like, I don't have the answer back at my IA warehouse waiting to, you know, dig it off the shelf and ship it to your organization. It, it doesn't work yeah. that way. And I feel like the work that we do is so, um, subjective that we really need to, remain focused on figuring out the right way together, as opposed to selling our way uh, to everyone that is in our organization.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the, the kind of thing about getting, it's amazing. You're right about the, the, the getting fired thing and, and, and pushing. It's, it shocks me uh, how many people uh, within organizations give up without ever without trying and i I think it can be we make huge assumptions about what our managers and our colleagues will or will not agree to all the time i hear that you know i go into an organization they go oh you'll never get that past so and so but but they're making assumptions about how that person will react and and also where they've maybe tried something in the past that didn't work but then it's a different moment in time and just because something didn't work in the past doesn't mean it won't work today right um and and i think people do self-center themselves and you're right what's the worst that can happen you can get fired well you know we're not there's not exactly a shortage of jobs for people like us out there is there really
1: well and the other part is i I just think it's funny like if you've ever If you've ever spent any time in a large organization, you know that there's plenty of incompetent people that aren't getting fired for not being very (laughs) good at their job. So in reality, it takes so much to get fired, like – To actually get fired, you, you really, you need to do something pretty aggressively wrong. And a lot of times, and it needs to be documented. Otherwise, you know, they get in trouble with all sorts of regulations and things. So I would, I would say, you know, that it is a little tongue in cheek to say push so hard until you get fired. But I do believe that often that's kind of like the, the release of anxiety that people need to say things that maybe they think are going to get them into hot water. Um, with yeah. especially at that executive and management layer. And, and what I found, um, as I was saying before, in, in performance reviews, um, I often got, you know, I remember one of the, the best quotes in past performance review of mine was uh, one of my managers said, "Abby's not afraid to go right for the throat." <laughs> and, and that's totally true. I, I will call somebody out. I'll call a spade a spade. I'll say like, "Hey, mm. th- when you say this thing and you say that thing, you're not actually saying the same thing, and you're you're resting on assumptions to get through this conversation." Um, but it never got me fired. It just got me into the uncomfortable position of having to hear that feedback on myself. And I think that that's yeah. another thing that keeps people from taking risks is that they they just want to be safe. They they want to they want people to say, "Oh, good job." You know, they don't want people to say, "Ee." You tried that and it didn't, it didn't work or you're rubbing people the wrong way. Um, mm. you know, at one point I was actually, uh, a employee, employer of mine sent me to like a, like a management work with people, better class. <laughs> and at the time that it happened, you know, I was, I was in my mid twenties and, and I was really offended that this had been called out enough times by my coworkers that I had to go to this, this training. Mm. But when I look back on it, it gave me a lot of the skills that I use mm. now to get through my job. And, and one of them was not assuming that you're smarter than anybody or right. Yeah. You know, and if you can let go of those two things being right and being the smartest person in the room, you can get a lot of really good work done. And it, it yeah. took, it took that experience for me to really figure that out. Do you think
0: that's, that's an age thing to some degree? Because I, uh, uh, <laughs> there there is a right and a wrong way to do this isn't there there's a right and a wrong way to be pushy um and I certainly look at my twenty year you know year old something which Marcus can no doubt attest to he 's worked with me for a very long length of time and you know I could be so bloody stubborn and i still am to some extent but there are there are ways and means of doing it if that makes sense
1: yeah i I think that you know you have to learn you have to learn not only your craft but you also have to learn What it's like to be at work, you know, and I feel like that's something that, you know, when does, when do you get taught that you you don't like there's no, (laughs) No. and even if you read a book on it, it's not the same thing as going through it. And, and I do think when you, when you get out of school and you know what you want to do, and you've got this like idea of the kind of designer or the kind of whatever it is that you want to be. You do want to be right. You do want to be praised. You do want to build your portfolio to be what you want it. And it takes quite a lot of, of kind of energy to protect that over time. Mm. And I think mm. as I've gotten older, that's one of the things that softened in me is my want to protect all that. You know, I just, I just want to get my work done and I want the people that I work with to be, you know, equally pleased with the outcomes as what I am. Um, and yeah. that's not necessarily, you know, clear at the beginning of a project of like oh this is going to be like this and kind of that predictive part goes away it becomes less important mm. i think over time
0: mm. wow we could carry on forever i just abby you're a pleasure to talk to um, uh, but i do need to talk about our our second sponsor before we wrap up today's show which is shopify So Shopify is the leading multi-channel commerce software. It's got over 275,000 merchants around the world that use Shopify. Um, The company has created a partner program, which is great if you're a freelancer or an agency um, into web design or development, um, because you can create beautiful e-commerce solutions for businesses. Very, very simply, very straightforward. While the Shopify partner program offers all kinds of benefits to you as a web professional, including um, some great opportunities for passive income. One of the best things about Shopify is the fact that they share all of this content to help you as a freelancer or agency grow your business. And one example of that is a a great book series that they've um, started called grow. Now uh, the grow book series was created to provide um, web designer freelancers and agencies with insights on how to kind of grow their businesses to the next level. And each book features individual chapters written on subject matter experts from across the industry um uh including freelance unions pop-up experts it goes on including me most importantly i have written contributed to this if i do say so myself shopify partners have already published two books in the series um there's grow volume one which is i think the one that i went with which is a beginner's guide to growing your design and development business and then there's a volume two now which is becoming a full stack freelancer yeah i wouldn't have I wouldn't have contributed to that one as I am not a full stack anything. Um, So they're they're really great. You could check them out. You could get your hands on them. um, You could download them uh, by going to shopify.com forward slash grow. Really good books. Definitely worth checking out. Okay. Marcus, Abby, Abby has been on the show before, so she She knows knows the horror that comes next.
2: Um, I've got two jokes um, and I've got a preferred one, but what nationality is next week's guest Paul? I don't know. They're not, they're, are they, well, they're, are, are they from the UK? You don't know. No, I'm pretty sure they're not. Okay. Well we can we'll do this. Are while. you
0: going to offend somebody now?
2: No, 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 no. I'm going to use a product name that I don't think is, uh, means anything to anyone outside the okay. UK, but Hey, right. so just laugh politely. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do every week. Yes. <laughs> uh, this is from Aslan again, Aslan Cutherland. Oh yeah. Um, And it's on the Bad Jokes channel of the World Slack channel. Uh, A pirate walks into a bar with some chocolate on his head. He sits down and orders some rum. The bartender asks, why do you have chocolate on your head? Ah, says the pilot, you've spotted the bounty on my head. (laughs) Do you you have bounties?
1: Yeah, coconut
2: chocolate Oh, All of that's set up. I didn't know whether uh, bounties were just a UK thing. Mm -hmm. There you go. so there you go. Abby, where can people find out more about you? Because
0: um, no doubt after listening to you today, they're desperate to find out all there is to know about Abby. Sure.
1: Uh, you can find me at abbytheia.com.
0: Cool. Oh, well, that was very straightforward and simple. <laughs> I hope so. Are you, are you still blogging a lot?
1: Uh, I am. I'm currently working on my second book. So that's been taking a lot of my my writing attention.
0: Um, Ooh. What are you writing about?
1: I'm writing a book called How to Make Time.
0: Cool. Wow. That sounds um, interesting.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the reason is then I wrote my first book about information architecture and the number one piece of feedback I got is, yeah, that sounds great, but I don't have time for that.
0: Do you know, that's so funny. <laughs> that's so funny. That's exactly the same as I get. And and I've dedicated a section of my book to the same thing, but not a whole book. Mm-hmm. So that's impressive.
1: Well, we should definitely have a, have another conversation about that.
0: Yeah. So, uh, to remind people about your first book. What was that called? Because that—that was the. I just loved that book. Something about mess, isn't it? I can't remember <laughs> yeah, it's the called uh, it's called
1: How to Make Sense of Any Mess, and it's a, a uh, beginner's guide to information architecture.
0: It "Don't let that put you off." Sorry, that was really badly worded. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, so even if you're not into information architecture right or what you think information architecture is still get that book it is just a brilliant read it's really entertaining and it applies in so many aspects of life way beyond you know website navigation so just get your get your hands on it it's a really good book one of my favorite um books i've read for a long time okay so just a reminder to everybody um to send in some more questions you can um post them as comments at boag.world forward slash questions or you can email them to me at paul but until next week, thank you, Abby. Thank you, Marcus, Bye, oh, thank and you. thanks to everybody listening to the show. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye
2: Oh.